Hello and welcome to the latest episode of Future Thinking with me, Chris Slowly. In this series so far, we've heard from neuroscientists, futurists and ESG specialists, but the next few episodes will delve deeper into the industry itself. First up is Timer Hyatt, the Chief Operating Officer of US investment giant PGIM. Timer spoke to me from Manhattan about what the future of asset management looks like from the inside, something he's given a lot of thought over, having produced a number of white papers on where the industry could and perhaps should be going. We'll look at how business models are evolving and changing, how lockdown is affecting longer term plans, and what moves towards a more technologically driven industry means for fundamental things like the type of people you hire. An interesting and wide reaching chat that I hope you enjoy. Thank you for joining us. Delighted to be part of the podcast. One of the reasons I was uh, keen to speak to somebody in your capacity is we are talking about in this series, the future. And one thing we have overlooked at this point is what the future of the business of the asset management industry is likely to be. And as luck would have it, you've recently authored a white paper looking at that, the future of business that looked at multiple different things of how companies could evolve and change. Uh, before we delve into it, can you just give me a bit of background on that? Can you just give me how do that is that something you're thinking about constantly? Something you're looking at constantly? That that evolution of where the industry might be going? Well, Chris, we have lots of people who are focused on you know tactical market moves, but I think uh, given the number of investors we have who think long term, uh, we do recognise we need to parallel track that with a view on what's going to change over the three, five, even the ten year horizon. I think when you get, get well beyond 10 years, you're a little bit into futurism, beyond certain trends like demographics and maybe climate change, uh, which, which are quite uh, clear over longer time periods. But over that sort of three to 10 year horizon, we have lots of investors who are interested. And in my seat, I uh, get the luxury of talking to people from real estate, equities, fixed income, privates, alternatives, and really get a range of perspectives on secular trends that are going to kind of reshape the world and therefore the investment opportunities that we have uh, to play against uh, over that time period. So absolutely a key part of how we think about uh, keeping our clients informed and our portfolio managers focused on longer term trends and how we can uh, play them to the benefit of our investors. And that, that white paper that you put together, that was, that was shaped around three, if I've read it correctly, it was shaped around how those themes will progress and the potential for three firms or if I've understood this there, there seems to be a Venn diagram of where some could be in one of the areas and, and potentially touch upon with the other which were weightless superstar and purposeful firms so can you just talk through that how do you see that evolving as a theme and, and will it be companies being distinctly one of those things or could there be many of those things I think of them as archetypes, as, as, as dimensions of firms that will get more accentuated and more accelerated over the next, uh, some of it is happening now, but over the next three, five, 10 years. And I think you're absolutely right to think of them as sort of a, you know, an overlapping Venn diagram set. Uh, at the start of it all is weightlessness, which is our term for the rise of intangible assets, that the old world of factories and machinery and equipment is becoming less and less relevant in terms of the asset and value of companies versus intangible assets. And that's about R&D, software, data, intellectual property, design, brand. Those, those things are increasingly dominating uh, market values. So something like 70% of the S&P uh, European equities are intangible assets now. Over 85% of the S&P 500 uh, here in the US where, where I'm based. 
and and these kinds of uh, intangible assets uh, are very different in how investors need to think about them and uh, it's very interesting why they have become so important and that very naturally follows and we can talk a little more about what they mean but that very naturally follows to a world where the minimum efficient scale at which a company can be success, successful and how big it can get is much larger than before and that leads to these superstar firms so very much they are congruent with weightless firms because it means you can have a few big winner take all firms that dominate a sector and i think purposefulness is a slightly separate archetype i do think as you get more kind of uh, uh, knowledge workers in the weightless economy more millennials in the in the economy there is more of a focus on looking at a broader purpose beyond profit but i think purposefulness is a is a trend that actually goes beyond just weightless firms it 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 touches everybody and it's about kind of a rejection of milton friedman's somewhat simplistic view that you know shareholder profit maximization is the sole goal of companies and a broader view uh, around how a much wider set of stakeholders really need to be thought about for a company to have purpose including your clients your community the people you are serving your employees and so on how far along that journey do you think we are because we did a big study last year. We did an ESG audit where we spoke to a lot of companies who have been looking externally at what they've been investing in and what they've been covering. But then we also asked the question, what are you doing internally? How much are you doing to, I suppose, prove your worth? What are you doing for your employees? What are you doing for your community? Do you still think, and I, mean, I appreciate it's hard for you to talk for other companies, but it, do you think companies are really starting to address that now? And this purpose element has become a mainstream consideration rather than sort of a subcommittee of a subcommittee? I think talking about purposefulness as opposed to actually being purposeful is something that every company, and I'm talking not just about asset management across all sectors of the economy, that every company has to do. They have no choice now, given the power of other stakeholders, their employees, their customers, regulators, they have no choice but to talk about it. But I think you're absolutely right to point out that there's a lot of what I call corporate window dressing. You know, some companies are walking the walk, uh, but many companies are merely talking a good game. I think uh, what somebody recently called the elite charade of changing the world without actually doing so. And I think as investors, uh, particularly with many of our clients uh, increasingly focused on ESG standards, it's really about how do you take an active measure of a company actually doing something? So what are the real dollars they're spending on uh, purposeful goals? What actual effects are they achieving? Uh, how much controversy is around what they're actually doing, regardless of what they're saying in terms of regulatory reporting on their ethics practices, on their compensation, on their true diversity, on customer controversies you might pick up in social media. Those are the sort of ways you can sort of avoid some of the window dressing by corporate marketing departments and, and get to really understand what's happening in a company. I think, I mean, the, uh, for me at least, these things do cross over somewhat because, I mean, we, we're all working remotely at the moment. I suppose that makes us ultimate weightless workers. We're not having a, as much carbon impact because we're not going to work. But do you think, and I, I mentioned this because I read also a piece that you wrote, the technological frontier, or the, sorry, the, the technology frontier. And do you think as, as technology improves, it will also help companies achieve a lot of these purposeful gains? I think technology can can work both ways. It's uh, fascinating to see what's happening right now, where uh, the 
power of uh, the big social media companies uh, was considered from a privacy angle, an invasiveness angle, kind of electoral uh, fake news angle, a, a really uh, source of, uh, you know, uh, public uh, destruction of kind of social fabric. And now with uh, the current coronavirus crisis, uh, much of that same data uh, while sometimes being used in ways that are a little sinister is also helping with a lot of the tracking and tagging that we need. So I think uh, technology can be a force both for good and for bad in terms of purposefulness. I think in a narrow, more tactical sense, certainly, uh, as people become more comfortable with uh, video conferencing and other technologies, it could have an impact on, on travel and so on. Uh, but I really see technology as, as something that is no longer about just Silicon Valley. It's no longer just about a narrow tech sector. It is about every company embracing technology. And that embracing might help them with their purposeful goals. But I think it also just helps um, them, them create a corporate model that will work and thrive in the future. And will leave in its wake, I think, a vast number of firms. There's huge tail risk here in people's investment portfolios of firms that haven't been able to make that adjustment and just get left behind uh, by the firms who are able to embrace technologies in the broader sense of the word. Well, yeah, I, I was going to bring that up because I made a note from the, the report that you had that technology actually predates Silicon Valley by about a million years. And technological, technological progress is, is about sort of the invention of fire and, and, and improvement, not just the, the latest app coming out of a, a highly priced startup. So I think there is still that, that blurring of people being drawn towards things. And I put that in our in the notes before the chat because a few years ago at least from a, a media side we seem to be writing about blockchain this blockchain that there's the famous story of uh, a long island iced tea company that changed their name to long island blockchain and that share <laughs> price rose considerably which i think was i'm not sure if it was done facetiously or it was done by a very canny marketing team but how much of what we're seeing Oh, how much from your side of things as a company can you separate signals from noise how much can you say well actually this change this will have a genuine long-term impact and, and how easy is it to separate something you think actually there's a lot of hype around this but i'm not sure about the real genuine benefits for us as a company i yeah, know it's an excellent question and i think uh, there is a lot of uh, hype surrounding technology uh, we do think that uh, in this particular wave of new technologies maybe a little different from you know the one hype where if you put dot com in front of anything you you try to sell it for a for a billion dollars and then discovered it might be worthless. I think this time it is genuine, and I liken it more to what went on in the 1980s when you had the PC revolution when personal computers allowed you to automate and digitize and uh, capture so much more information than you could before that. I do think the current wave of technologies is is doing that. Having said that, I completely agree with you. The pace of techno technological adoption is so fast and unprecedented. You know, it took, I think, uh, 120 years or so for sort of steam and motor ships to be broadly adopted by countries. It took only 16 years for personal computers. It took seven years for the internet. And now you have things being adopted in kind of two, three-year patterns. So the speed at which companies need to understand new technologies and separate uh, what is truly useful is, uh, I think, a more critical skill and makes it easier to get it wrong. Having said that, I do think uh, there's more clarity now around who is the best provider of something. So for example, blockchain, we think separated from Bitcoin and cyber currencies, but blockchain as a technology is absolutely something we think uh, 
the investment banking uh, and trading world should focus on. It probably can help uh, accelerate the pace of trading and some of the kind of more old-fashioned ways of uh, setting prices and FX and other, other kind of tradable instruments. We don't think as an asset manager, it's our natural skill point to build blockchain, but we do need to get much better at understanding where the cutting edge is of blockchain how far the trading houses have gotten in using it and making data more secure and accelerating the pace of trading. And then understanding how do we change not our investment process necessarily, but our trading around our investment decisions using that. So being informed on technology is half the battle. And then the other half is what is truly something that we should build in-house that would be a competitive advantage rather than just plain vanilla technology where increasingly in a winner takes all world, you just need to find the best provider of it. We are not going to build our own video conferencing technology. Uh, there are companies who are specializing and have the scale and the ability to invest in it. But there are certain areas that you need to do in-house and others where you need to find third-party solutions. But being not just within a technology department, but across the company, everyone should be thinking about what is technology going to do to my neck of the woods. Does that change from an operational standpoint then, to, uh, talking with your, your COO hat on, does that change the type of people that you hire? Are you seeing the mix of people change? I mean, as a, as a company from our side of things with CityWorld, there's been a great push to add more on the technology side because we realize that people consume news in different ways, that our systems have to be quicker, faster. And like you said, a lot of it we're not going to build ourselves, but we still need to have the capabilities in-house to do the best of what we can do, if that makes sense. Have you seen from a top-down at PGIM that you are changing the type of person that you bring on board? Absolutely. I think in a couple of dimensions. First, I think uh, increasingly people who are overseeing the technology group are also strategists or looking at operations or have a much deeper business sense. It's no longer a silo. And it no longer works separated from the rest of the businesses. Second, uh, I do think uh, data analytics and technology is merging much more. So you have data scientists and technology and digital specialists who are coming together much more. And third, I think, uh, you know, operations in particular and technology both kind of live separate from the front office business. And I think there is finally a recognition that technology is actually key, not just to driving how your ops functions, how how quickly you can make a trade, how quickly you can get a product to market, but it also affects how you distribute, uh, how you understand your client base. Uh, and then uh, in the case of asset management firms or investment managers like ourselves, uh, it does uh, imply that you can better understand your portfolios and maybe get more alternative data sources that you didn't traditionally think of using to better inform the portfolio manager on what the right uh, security is to trade. I still think in fundamental equity and fixed income in real estate, there will be discretionary portfolio managers, humans in other words, uh, who will be at the front line of making choices. The technology is just not advanced enough, but increasingly they'll need to get adept at using alternative data sources and alternative technologies to understand what's going on in the world with a far broader reference set of data, both structured and unstructured than they historically used. I think you touched upon one of the points that I was going to conclude on them because the series is, is future thinking, it's looking ahead and changing the way we think. So with, if we do end up with discretionary managers still involved, but do you see 
delivery systems changing. You talked there about distribution having to evolve. Do you see the way people actually, I don't know, purchase funds or even invest changing over time? I do think it's going to change. And I think the answer is a little different institutionally versus retail. I think an institutional, and again, the current crisis has probably accelerated a trend that was already there. Increasingly, uh, sales uh, professionals and clients are saying, you know, that trip to Tokyo or, or, or Munich uh, or New Orleans wasn't really necessary. We can have the same impact and get the same understanding virtually. So I do think there'll be less business travel even beyond this current crisis. I do think uh, clients will use artificial intelligence, machine learning, and deeper data analytics to, to tear apart portfolios with more rigor and more depth than they historically had. I think passive investing was a start. You had a clear benchmark you can now invest in, but much more depth in terms of different factors and how they operate. I do think that will lead to performance fee structures on the institutional side and how to price alpha, how to price out performance will become a bigger issue in the industry. And I think uh, it will mean that, you know, increasingly rather than just emails and calls and video conferences, client portals will become a necessity for every asset manager to have three years out rather than just a nice to have that a few of the alternatives firms have and that maybe don't have as much richness as they have. Everybody now wants 24 seven information on how their portfolio is doing. And if you can get it at your bank and at your brokerage house, you sort of want it even institutionally. The institutional world follows the retail world. I think on the retail side for individual investors, uh, I think sort of this sort of agnostic vehicle where you can be in an ETF, in a sweep account, in a, in a USITS or mutual fund, uh, these separately managed account platforms and how you can seamlessly move between different sources for a single fee structure that's going to grow as the technology allows it. I think robo-advisors probably less of a big trend. I think they'll be integrated with large wealth managers that become part of the offering, but I don't expect too many of them to survive on their own because accessing distribution is, is so different. And finally, I would say I am hoping technology, and we are doing some research on it and have some products. I'm hoping technology will help with people entering retirement. Uh, to move from the accumulation phase, where I think we finally as an industry are kind of getting it right, to the decumulation phase. And that means understanding lifespans, it understand, means understanding guaranteed income, it means understanding kind of an individual you know, liability-driven investing path, the way a defined benefits pension plan does for every individual. And that requires the next generation of user experience and technology for us to do that seamlessly and cheaply for every person entering retirement, the way every pension plan does it for their body of, uh, you know, uh, pension beneficiaries. Well, as uh, Stuart Parker of PGM said, the change that we're seeing in the asset management industry is no longer quick, it's lightning quick. So I think if we were to have this conversation, even in six months time, some of these things would have evolved and changed. But I think we'll have to pick it up there. Timer, thank you very much for taking the time. Delighted to be part of the conversation and absolutely it's going to be changing at a very quick pace. So watch this space. Fantastic. Thank you very much. That was Tamer Hyatt with his views on how asset management can adapt and thrive. Staying with the in That was Tamer Hyatt with his views on how asset management can adapt and thrive. Staying within the industry, next week's episode looks at a core consideration, communication. I'm joined by Mikkel Strodup of Spa Invest, who's a regional director for the asset manager with a particular focus on marketing and communications. So please join me next time. Music.